And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. This time live from the Land of Enchantment for Sunday, June 20th, 2021. All those 20s. If we average them out, what would they come to? Anyway, first of all, um, happy Father's Day to all fathers and would-be fathers. And uh, I, I guess you can never be a former father. If you've been one, you're always one. Anyway, yes, happy Father's Day. This has been a weekend of very interesting uh, holidays. Uh, yesterday, Juneteenth. Today, Father's Day. So, happy Father's Day, all you fathers out there. Um, apropos of that, if you go to Radio with Pictures, if you click on our URL, which is the other side of midnight.com, and you click on tonight's banner, which says very boldly against this really amazing artwork from a 1930s film starring Raymond Massey called Of Things to Come. Uh, click on that. That will take you to our guest page tonight. And then click uh, right under that. You'll see fast links. Click on my name. And that will take you to my items and radio with pictures. Item number one, I thought kind of appropriate of what we're going to be uh, referencing uh, probably on and off again throughout the evening. Uh, this is a photo of a dad sleeping on a hospital floor as his wife was uh, uh, shepherding their young daughter to get checked because she had sore throat and trouble breathing and turned out to be nothing, nothing serious. She was out in two hours. But this guy apparently is a cement worker, had just come off a 12-hour shift, and as is very apropos these days where parenting is becoming more and more co-equal, certainly uh, during the pandemic when people were, a lot of people being forced to do office work from home, um, there's all kinds of new things happening in the culture. And if you read our promo for tonight's show, you can see that I mentioned a few of them. But there does seem to be a kind of a general reassessment and awakening all over the world. It's not just us. It's not just the United States. It's everywhere. It's Africa, Europe, India, anywhere you, you kind of poke beneath the uh, covers. There are changes, fundamental changes. And, of course, tonight I and my guest, uh, Rick Levine, who is a uh, very, very well-known astrologer, has professional expertise going back decades. He is the person I've wanted to talk to about this for some time because it's almost one of those, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? As we discussed with Richard Grossinger a couple weekends ago, are the changes we're seeing globally, societally, being occasioned by COVID-19 or did COVID-19 come along with a whole bunch of other changes which are being impelled forward by the window now presented by this very interesting, measurable, changing physics? I mean, this is this conundrum. When we see things happening uh, ritually, when we see agencies, government agencies like, you know, my favorite one, NASA, doing things on a ritual clock. Is this happening because someone has planned it? Or is it part of a subconscious substratum moving us along like leaves on a stream? So we are impelled to do things at certain times 
on certain dates at certain hours because that's how the physics is changing. Part of our discussion tonight. Now, apropos of these changes, one of the things that a lot of economists are noticing is that uh, the predicted V-shaped curve where we fell off a cliff like a year ago because everything had to be shut down. And now that things have opened back up, um, the some economists have predicted that the fall of the economic situation would be replaced by a rise where you get basically a V on a graph. It goes down, then it goes back up. Well, that's not happening. And it seems to be happening not, not at least in so much as because of the enormous economic disparities in our economy. We have a few extraordinarily rich people, billionaires, multiple billionaires, hundreds of billionaires, you know, like Jeff Bezos, who I think uh, the other day, uh, you know, stated that he is worth now, his net worth is something like $190 billion, some extraordinary, you know, amount of money for one individual to control. And that's equal to like, you know, several million uh, families or even more, maybe maybe a hundred million. I forget what the numbers are because they go so much out of sight. Anyway, there seems to be, as we are recovering economically, economists are looking and employers are looking for for, you know, employees to come back. Everyone needs a job. You know, you can't really survive without a job, both uh, uh, you know, practically and, and, and psychologically. There are a lot of people who are taking, apparently, a second look at their entire life, and they're deciding they do not want to be in service industries. They don't want to work at Walmart. They don't want to flip hamburgers at uh, uh, McDonald's. They don't want to do a whole bunch of other things that they did before the pandemic struck, and they're reassessing, and it, 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 it seems to be permeating all levels of our society and culture and economy. And that brings us to item number two. American Airlines, among others, have had to cancel hundreds of flights because they don't have the staffing. And they don't have staffing to satisfy maintenance issues, safety, FAA regulations, etc., etc. So there is a cascade. That's item number two. United is being affected. South uh, West, is, they're all being affected. And what's so interesting is the demand is there. You know, people are flying almost now at a level pre-pandemic, uh, primarily because uh, we're reaching that 70% national uh, population of vaccinated people, but. The demand is not being met by an appropriate supply of airline services, airline maintenance, uh, baggage handlers, for instance. Uh, and, and the airlines are now offering bonuses and all kinds of incentives. Well, this is only part of, I believe, and I'm going to be discussing it tonight with both uh, Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert, who's going to be joining us in the third hour. This is really far more interesting than just an economic situation. To me, it's part of a reawakening of people's souls and spirit and drives and reasons for living. People have had like a year 
to reassess where they are in their lives, and they're making new decisions, striking out in new directions, which, of course, is not helping in the short term the economic dislocations that uh, all of us have experienced. It's part of a larger trend of change, which I believe is coming, and you know my model, that it's being guided and modulated by this background physics, which guides everything in our three-dimensional reality, up to and including consciousness, and it's modulated by various uh, physical factors that we're going to talk about again tonight. But the fact that we're seeing it at such a uh, fundamental level. Well, um, there's some other things we can talk about in terms of all that, but I want to introduce my first guest. We were having some Skype problems earlier, so um, uh, let me ask uh, Keith. Uh, you can type or you can you know, just uh, talk to me on the air. Do we have Rick with us on Skype? And, ah, I get a yes. So, a professional astrologer since 1976, the bicentennial, Rick Levine has become a respected leader in the global astrological community. He's the past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StartIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick wrote a daily horoscope column for nearly 17 years, delivered via the internet to millions of readers per day through tarot.com. His expanded daily Planet Pulse is still available on Instagram at Rick Levine Astrologer and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rick Levine Astrologer. He is the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, science, spirit, and our place in the cycles of history. His internet videos reach tens of thousands of people every month, and in 2018, Rick was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamani Institute of Astrology in Kolkata, India. Uh, and that's enough reading. Um, let me bring on our guest of the evening, Rick Levine. Rick, welcome back to the other side of well, midnight. Well, it's lovely to... It's lovely to be back. Can you hear me? I hear you five by, as the All uh, right. pilots used to say. That's um, right. We are going through extraordinary times. And I think one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is the reason I wanted you to be on tonight, is has any of this been predicted in the stars and planetary configurations, or are we really in uncharted new terrain? Oh, I hate to do this to you, but I would say the answer is C, both of the above, oh, both okay. A and B. Uh, yes, astrologers for years have been talking about the um, the uniqueness of 2020, 2021 into 2022. And at the same time, um, you know, you can generally predict that something's going to happen and still not know the specifics. It's like being in the middle of a storm, knowing that lightning's going to strike, but you don't know when and you don't know where. Why is it so uncertain? Because, you know, I've been palling around with astrologers all my life. My mother was very interested in astrology, so I was familiar with horoscopes and charts and, you know, aspects and all that from a very early age. 
but it wasn't until I, you know, reached uh, the point where I dabbled and then really gripped this idea of a an alternate parallel physics to the physics that we've been taught that I realized, unlike, you know, Sagan's flip comment, that the gravitational field of the obstetrician is far greater than Jupiter during the moment of birth. It, it was at that moment when I realized it wasn't any of the familiar fields that science is, is uh, you know, has been telling exactly. us about. That it's, yeah. it's got to be something different. That I realized that it's this difference which really is the pulse of life itself. It's modulated. I've now been able you know, taking Robin around the world, measuring ancient sacred sites, eclipses and transits to to physically measure it in, in, you know, Western modality terms. But why is it still, why is there this window of uncertainty? It's almost like as there is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in particle physics, you can either know exactly where a particle is or how fast it's moving, but you can't know both at the same time because one affects the other in terms of observing it. It's almost like there's this window of uncertainty around astrological aspects and planetary configurations where, as you just said, yeah, you know something's going to happen, but you can't tell what. And is that a failure of the model or is it a measure of the imperfection of how much we have yet to know about hyperdimensional astrology oh this time i would say see none of the above <laughs> oh my 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 i'm, I'm really batting oh, man, a thousand your, tonight your your little preamble i have like 11 places to jump in all at the same time and it's impossible because you said so much in such a short period of time um i mean you're you're talking my language when you're talking about heisenberg and the fact of the matter is that that we think of quantum physics as occurring on the microcosmic level, but if the universe actually is as we believe it to be, and that is a reflection occurs at the point of consciousness between the micro and the macro, then those things that we call quantum physics should be occurring on some some way on the macrocosm also. And I would point to the simple fact when we talk about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that the more we know about where a planet is at any given point in time, the less we know about where it's going and vice versa. Um, I would call this Levine's uncertainty principle. In other words, you look up in the sky, you see the moon or you see Saturn, but we see them as points in space. But the fact of the matter is, as we know, there is a resonance to these objects because they are um, they are basically um, physical artifacts of resonant frequencies, whether it's the moon about 13 cycles a year or Saturn about three cycles a century or Pluto about four cycles a millennium. The fact of the matter is that we can't know both at once. And then we come back to the um, the way we predict in astrology is based upon repeating patterns. I mean, we know that Mercury turns retrograde three times a year for about 20 to 24 days. And we know its exact motions. And when it does, we have done this enough times that we can begin to make predictions around that or a new moon or a full moon because new moons happen 12, 13 times a year. But when you get to things that have never happened before or haven't happened for centuries, we know something's going to happen and it fits into a wave of other things that are similar, 
but because it's different, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Let me make a small deviation. You just mentioned Mercury retrograde. For people who have been on another planet and not you know, familiar with what we're talking about, we're in the middle of a ret Mercury retrograde right now, aren't we? Yeah, we're actually toward the end of it. Um, it began on May 29th, and it ends on the 24th. Um, and it's actually at the very beginning, at the very end of the Mercury retrograde cycles, often where the phenomena is the most noticeable because Mercury's speed, its apparent speed from Earth's perspective, is changing faster than it does at any other time. Mm. So for those that are not familiar with the term, describe what a Mercury retrograde means in both astrology and in common parlance. And then... I, it, it, it's really simple to understand Anyone who has ever been on a subway in any major city knows that if you're passing a train on the track right next to you and you look out the window for a split second, you're sure that the train next to you is going backwards. And then you realize it's just not going as fast as you are forward. Whenever a planet gets closer to Earth than it does at other times in its normal cycle, whatever the planet is, and I mean here the, the quote-unquote real planets, and I'm not talking the sun and the moon, um, but whenever a planet gets closer to Earth than it does at other times in its cycle, we lose perspective, and it looks like it's going backwards. It doesn't really, but it looks that way, and the ancients have been tracking these rhythms for um, at least two or three millennia. And when Mercury gets close to Earth, because every planet is related to a, an ar a, a set of archetypes or concepts or symbols, if you will, that Mercury, as the Greeks called it, the winged messenger, uh, the heavenly messenger, Mercury is related to all forms of communication, language, interchange, mercantilism, where there's an exchange of goods. Mm. Um, Mercury has to do with, with sending and receiving data. And as Okay, such, hang on, hang on. Stop there, stop there. Why? Why have we, I guess empirically, astrologers going back, you know, countless generations, associated this fastest-moving inner planet smaller than than any other planet in the solar system why size do, size doesn't matter why have well mass and size and distance from the sun do matter in the physics so why is mercury associated with communication what's that link how did that well go ahead yeah the the, the 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 question is not what's that link the question is how did we think that we found a link and then laid it onto that on how did we make a correlation exactly and i would exactly, say yeah. that we made that correlation by hundreds hundreds thousands of years of observation until what we know of as greek mythology you know the the planets are actually planet gods that each planet is part of the um, uh, the Olympic um, pantheon, and they each carry their own symbol set. And those symbols, even through modern times, largely seem to work, although we've developed nuances that the ancients didn't have. Which goes back to why Mercury and communications. Because it's at a frequency that seems to catch that. And when we observe Mercury moving through the sky, when we observe Mercury making contact or connection with other planets, 
it seems in some way to um, either increase or decrease or um, or 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 introduce static into communication. Now, wait, 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 I don't wait. know, Richard, if you're familiar with the work of Robert Nelson. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. The RCA okay. engineer in the 1950s. Right. right. And, and of course, you know, we moderners don't realize that international radio communication was like the only way to run businesses because you had to be able to communicate. And, and so um, RCA Global was responsible for that. And as you know, because of something every now and then they would drop a day or two or three where there could be no communication and they needed to know what the hell was going on and although Robert Nelson hates the fact that he became a bit of a um, <laughs> cult hero to astrologers what he discovered was that the orbit of Mercury when it made 90 degree angles coming measuring it from the center of the Sun to the outer planets in particular Jupiter and Saturn those were days of maximum interference and they didn't always correspond with sunspots which was the original thought although there is some correlation and so the question as to why mercury communication i honestly um i, I can't answer that I can't answer why Saturn has to do with structure and stability and why Uranus has to do with rebellion and, and innovation or why Venus has to do with love or Mars has to do with war, but they do. Well, that's a very interesting admission. So you know the empirical pattern, you, you and when I say you, I mean astrologers in general, hundreds of thousands of generations have seen this pattern and mapped you know, events onto the pattern, but fundamentally at the core, you don't understand the physics of how it works? Yes. Wow. <laughs> did, you hear, did you hear that sigh? Yes, I, 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 they, they made me loud and clear. <laughs> well, that, see, that's actually reassuring in one way because a lot of, you know, Western science is very pretentious and scientists pretend they know when they haven't a clue. And, oh, yeah. and and in academic journals, they, they obscure their profound ignorance with, well, such and such suggests that, or um, our understanding is incomplete. And the, well, and well, the translation, Richard, what, you're saying is, what you're saying is true. And with great embarrassment, I would say that many, if not most astrologers, share something very basic with modern science with fundamental religions and in particular modern Western medicine. And that is based upon the knowledge that they think they have. They think they know more than they do. And I would say that unfortunately many astrologers fall into that category also. I don't, I'm aware of how much I don't know. So what we're really looking at is windows of opportunity or windows of probability yes. of statistical occurrences. And over time, there's this huge pattern match so that most of the time the pattern works, but there's always, like in quantum mechanics, stunning deviations, things that don't make sense, that, that are outside the box, that are unpredicted and unpredictable. And correct, I guess correct. that's kind of at the margins. So is there anybody working? Let me, let me kind of look at this at a big picture. Is there anybody really trying to figure out the physics of astrology um i would say yes i know of several and even many over the past 
20 to 40 years. I don't know that anyone really has. I think that that when you talk about it, I think I'm uh, I, I, I think I think I am probably as well versed in the possible um, solutions to the question as anyone. But when it comes down to it, as I admitted to you, I don't think we know. But just because we don't know um, how life began, it doesn't mean that life didn't begin, even though we don't know how. <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, well, see, that's the part that I think has put off an awful lot of scientists because in their models of how the universe works there's no room for astrology there's no room for if mercury is at 90 degrees to oh, yeah. Jupiter. Well, richard what you're saying is not only absolutely true it's even more fundamental on two basic issues that i would suggest are actually two limitations of modern science as we know it one of them is the fallacy of the requisite of repeatability. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that that, that the hypothesis and repeatability thing hasn't given us a, a, a ton of valuable information. The problem is that that true science says that something can never only happen once. <laughs> Because you can't, if you can't repeat it, it's not, it's not verifiable. It, therefore, it's not scientific. You have to be able to repeat something in order for it to be judged as a phenomena that would be called experimentally validated. And unfortunately, the universe doesn't work that way. There are things like positions of the planets, like the appearance of Richard Hoagland on this planet or Rick Levine. We only appear once. And so and so the, the model breaks down when it comes to astrology. But the second thing is even more basic, and that is in the Newtonian uh, paradigm, time is considered to be an independent variable, and it's considered to be mechanistic. Now, obviously, um, Einstein and the uh, uh, quantum reality uh, club maybe has bent that out of shape a little bit, but the idea that if you drop something from the Leaning Tower of Pisa and it accelerates at 32 feet per second per second, it doesn't matter whether you do that on January 3rd in the afternoon or on July 5th, 150 years later in the middle of the night, because time does not impact the mechanical interactions um, of the Newtonian universe. However, if you make that assumption, then astrology a priori just doesn't work. Well, but what you all just said was true up until a certain point, and then it became untrue through the modalities of Western physics. And we've got about exactly. a, we got about a minute till the bottom of the hour, so I'll pick this up on the other side. But just briefly, there have been a number of experiments, and I've obviously now gone looking for them, where something that was presumed from the 1950s forward through the work of a physicist named Walter Libby who charted the decay rate of an obscure isotope called carbon-14, he found out that carbon-14 has a half-life, meaning over a certain period of time, half of the atoms will decay of around between five and 6,000 years. I don't remember the exact number. I think it's closer to 6,000, 5,000. And the idea is that then in the next 6,000 years, Half of the remaining atoms will decay. You can't tell which one, but statistically, half of them will go away in another 6,000 years. And then in another 6,000, 
half of those remaining, well, that kind of thing. That's the radioactive decay rate, and it was presumed to be immutable, and we're going to pick this up in a couple of minutes on the other side. Right. He won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry uh, in 1964 for figuring out the radiocarbon-14 dating. Yeah, except it turns out now that the most constant clock in the universe, they thought up until that time, was abrogated by experiments which showed that radioactive decay rates are not constant. And yeah. on that note, we will hold it there. My guest of the morning, my first guest uh, for the first part of the show is Rick Levine. He is um, probably, I would say, without fear of overstatement uh, or understatement, one of the world's preemptive and preeminent uh, astrologers. And you just heard him admit that as a science, astrologers themselves do not yet know how astrology works. That's where I think the hyperdimensional model will come into its own. So on that note, let's listen to this, because this is so appropriate. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Anything your heart desires will come to you If your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. When you wish upon a star as dreamers do. One of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception at a, on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet. Because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. 
This is Etienne de la Boise Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news with Timothy, Anetta, and Kinthia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. Thank you, one and all. Uh, welcome back, Rick. I, I thought that was a little appropriate dip into nostalgia. That that song, when I first heard it back when uh, it was actually one of the theme songs of a Disney film called Pinocchio, it, yep. it kind of resonated with me because it was like there has to be, if that's true, a connection. And what I'm very humbled by and sobered by is that even after all these centuries and millennia, we don't really know as an organized science what that connection is. And I find that very, very humbling. We don't know what gravity is either. Uh, yeah, come on. Anyway, so so let me let me get <laughs> let me let me get back to the radioactive decay thing because there was there was a guy in um in at the University of Illinois a few weeks ago, no, I'm sorry, not weeks ago. I'm thinking another experiment I'm going to talk about momentarily. This was several years ago, and I forget his name. It begins with an F. I think it's Fishback or Fishbine or whatever. Anyway, he noticed that the um, decay rate of certain radioactive materials in his laboratory appeared to change with the position of the Earth around the sun in the course of a year. And I'm hoping I'm getting this right now. He found that the decay rate increased when we were going through the uh, winter solstice, which of course is uh, December 21st, and slowed down around the summer solstice, which I think is what, tomorrow? Or day after tomorrow? Today, it's 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 right now, right in this moment. Oh, so it's it's the twentieth this year, and it's right now. Okay. It yeah, it 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 varies, but it's actually eight thirty-two. It was eight thirty-two p.m. tonight. So we are at the moment of the 
sun holding still in its northern and southern uh, route it, that, it, that it takes because of the Earth's tilt. Hmm. Anyway, this guy, this physicist at the University of Illinois discovered that the radioactive, I think it was radium he was measuring, some isotope, changed with the year. And unfortunately, he associated that with the change, the small change, like half a million miles, of distance between the Earth and the Sun, between the summer solstice and the winter solstice. The Earth's orbit is not perfectly circular. We actually are a little farther from the Sun during the winter than we are during the summer. Uh, I'm sorry. We are actually closer to the sun during the winter. Exactly. Actually. Sorry, sorry. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Anyway, that's what he associated uh, his observations with having nothing to do with the alignment, the geometric alignment of the Earth, the sun, and the center of the Milky Way galaxy with, the, with, with its 11 million solar mass uh, black hole. I'm sorry, five million solar mass, okay? And that to me in the in the HD model is much more um, determinative and there should be a whole bunch of experiments looking at that and no one's looking at that because again, no one's thinking of external or unknown fields. Right. They're associating this with a 3D effect somehow associated with the solar cycle being close to the sun or farther away, whatever. But the idea, the old idea from the 50s forward and Libby's discovery that radioactive decay rates are constant, it turns out they are not. Now, this has huge implications over millions of years because radioactive decay rates of everything from, you know, carbon-14 for biological systems, organic systems, which is only useful around 40,000 years, uh, to right. things like thorium or other, you know, <coughs> plutonium, uranium, whatever, which are used to date, you know, granitic materials, geological eras, et cetera, et cetera. If none of those is really constant and the errors add over millions of years, that means a cornerstone of modern physics, which is measurement of the dating of, let's say, lunar samples brought back by the Apollo astronauts, it cannot work. Yep. Well, that throws everything into a cocked hat because it means at a fundamental level, looking at the universe and trying to measure when things occur, we basically know nothing. Yeah. Which is very makes humbling. Me, or it should me be. Feel smarter. <laughs> yeah. Well, until you get the right paradigm, until you understand what your observations are telling you, remember, if you have the wrong model and you cram your data into the wrong model, you're going to get wrong answers. You know, garbage in, garbage out. The mainstream physicists who think they understand radioactive decay through the standard model and charms and quarks and all that, they're wrong. And it's observationally wrong and they don't understand how they're wrong so the scaffolding of the House of Cards, mixing our metaphors madly, that they have built on this idea of the immutability, the constancy of something as simple as radioactive change, turns out not to be true. So don't feel bad that astrologers don't understand the physics of astrology yet, because mainstream science doesn't understand the physics of radioactive decay. 
Yeah. No, I don't feel badly at all. I don't feel badly that I don't really know how an internal combustion engine works either, but I've driven one since I was 18 years old. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so so back to first principles. If we yeah. can't, if we don't know yet how it works, how reliable is the statistics of, in terms of past history, past experience, past uh, events, it does work even if we don't know why. How good are it's we? Just, it's it's at, just as reliable as my car that when I put the key in the ignition these days, when I just sit there and touch the button, the car starts. I don't need you don't need to know how something works in order for it to be useful. I'm not saying that we don't want to know. I'm just saying that one doesn't require the other. Well, I mean, that seems kind of like an extreme position. I would say it would be much more useful if we understood the how because then we could be more precise in the what. Like you said at the top of the show that this period, you know, 20, 20, 21, 22, whatever, has been looked at by astrologers as a period of really interesting change, but no one could tell us what the change was because the science is not there. The, the well, under- no, there, hold on. I mean, we can't say what the specifics are any more than a quantum, any more than a... Um, microcosmic explorer, a, a, a particle physicist, can tell us where an electron is or where it's going because no one has ever seen an electron. What we see are clouds of electron possibilities. The point is, is that you have the same level of inaccuracy in the core of modern physics that has been um, scrutinized for a century now. Hmm. Okay, well, getting, you know, putting putting theory aside, what did astrologers, going back, and I would love to have seen some references, what did they say was going to happen in this 2021-22 time frame? Well, it actually goes back to 2020, because that's, I mean, the things that are happening in 2021 are part of a flow that was set up in 2020, um, and you know, whenever you're looking at any sort of cyclical event, you look at the um, previous uh, events tied to that same cycle. And that is easy to do, except if you have three or four cycles all occurring at the same moment, you can only look at the history of the separate cycles. And that's what makes this period of time so um, uh, so unusual or so uh, statistically improbable and therefore difficult to predict. So let me see if I understand this. If you have several cycles occurring simultaneously, but they're each of different periods, there will come a time when they all converge, they all coincide. Or at least of, at least more than one of more them. More than one. Yeah, not, but I'm, I'm I mean, thinking of the really yeah. uh, ultimate extreme where they all get together. And that yeah, tell- the Greeks had to work for that, and they said that it could never happen. But really, it probably can't. Yeah, but they were they were deeply into cycles. You know, Pythagoras and and you know uh, Plato and those guys. They they lived by sacred geometry, which is a frozen. No, it's form. true. But the idea of the Thema Mundi, which is the theme of the world, where each of the planets was in its sign that it was related to, all equally distantly placed from one another. Um, that 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 they. The hypothesis was that's the way it was when the universe was created, but it can never be that way again. But that's not true. We don't know that. If well, if you run the clock long enough, 
anything can occur. Okay, okay, Doctor Google. I mean, the real Google. <laughs> um, no, you're 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 right. However, as we know, there aren't just seven or nine or eleven things going around the sun. As I'm sure you know, NASA tracks over a half a million things that are orbiting around the sun, and so the mathematics become pretty extraordinary. Yeah, the question is, everything... which are really determinative and which are just noise. Well, that's a good question. I mean, it really is a good question, except physicists will claim that in right conditions, anything in the field impacts anything in the field. You know, so we, we don't it's a, it's a it's a it's a valid question. And it's a question that astrologers um, spend time with, because there are astrologers who only use what we call the seven visible planets. And when I say planets, I include in the Greek concept of planeta, things that wander include the sun and the moon. Mm -hmm. And there are astrologers who only use the sun, moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And don't use Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, Chiron, um, Nemesis, Curriculo, Eris, <laughs> and, and, a, and a list of other things that have now, or even things that were considered planets like Juno and Ceres when they were discovered only to be demoted because there's 20,000 named asteroids. Where do you draw the line? I don't think anyone knows. Well, I would again beg to differ because in the work I've been trying to pursue, trying to match the hyperdimensional model with classical astrology, um, angular momentum seems to be one of the keys. I, I totally agree. And well, then you define for folks what angular momentum is. Well, it's it's actually based upon a Newtonian concept that he called um, tangential. Um, he, he called it tangential. Uh, let me get the right word. Um, uh, he called it inertial gra gravity. It's the gravity of the of of the tangent where you have um, Pluto, for example. Um, even though it's so far away from the sun, it has a tremendous tangential force. Because it's so far away from the sun. Exactly. It, in, in the classic equations of planetary motion, it has extraordinary angular momentum, not because of its mass, because it's smaller than the moon, but because yep. of its immense distance, 4 billion miles, give or take, from the sun on average, right? Correct. But there's another factor which I found. And that has to do with inclination, because if everything also, is totally, it's something that astrologers look at. So if everything's um, it, orbiting in the same plane, like an old-fashioned, you know, LP record, that's well, not one quite, thing. But yes. But yeah, if you okay. have some planets like Pluto is tipped seventeen degrees, give or take, that tilt, coupled with its great distance, and thus great angular momentum in the gravity equation to keep it orbiting the sun, those two factors make Pluto very significant in charts and in angles and sextiles and quadratures and all that, far more than you would think this little speck out there in the dark should have under any reasonable association going back to the Sagan, you know, discounting of gravity as an effective astrological uh, understanding, right? Well, we know what Sagan's problem was. He didn't smoke enough weed. <laughs> no, Sagan had two roles. He wore a public hat and a private hat, and to stay in yeah. the club, the secret club, he had to wear the public hat and, no, and, and, and decry 
certain things that privately he was, I mean, I wish he was still around because he would so love to grapple with the hyperdimensional model. I, I absolutely know he would, you know. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, this gives Pluto this extraordinary, pun intended, leverage, um, you know, long moment arm leverage uh, in, in astrological signs. But when you start throwing in like Chiron, which is a chunk of rock a few miles across, I'm sorry, I part company because Chiron as a angular momentum driver is nothing compared to Jupiter or Saturn. Well, that may be true, but I must say that um, between the two of us, only one of us has observed the actual physics of the angular radi the the uh, radial longitude, you know, uh, created by Chiron uh, on other uh, planets in people's charts. And um, and as much as I would like to agree with you, my experience leads me to say that that's not true. Okay, that so Chiron that Chiron is immensely important, and 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 I could give you. Uh, hundreds of instances of this, but it would take me about 20 minutes to put that together. <laughs> we only have a three-hour show. Okay, so yeah. we have encountered now in our discussion a factor which is a apart from the standard hyperdimensional model, which is driven by angular momentum and aspects because of, of geometry, which in turn, you know, modulates the waves because it's all really waves, you know, ultimately it some level it's all waves all frequencies exactly totally totally agree with you so a good scientific approach would say okay if chiron has been so determinative discovered post discovery were there charts where things were happening in people's lives or institutions or whole countries you know you can actually chart the birth of the united states with the sun and cancer and all that and you know 1776 and whatever were there were there were there charts where things kept missing because there was an unknown x factor that then turned well, it out might not have been obvious to the people then but retrospectively when you create those charts for example when you do the chart that's called the sibley chart because there are many people who actually use the articles of confederation as a birth chart of the united states not the declaration of independence the july 4th 1776 anyhow when you look at that chart wait 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 wait, 4th, wait 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 which actually occurred on july 2nd see there's a little um, wiggle room there <clears throat> Well, no, the actual signing, um, I, I don't want to get into the history, but the actual signing, the last signature that that ratified the De uh, Declaration of Independence um, was at about 5 p.m. Um, and the, I, I can pull up the exact time, but I don't need to. It's not yeah, part of Yeah, but the agreement, right the now. consciousness agreement to do it was two days earlier. And nobody knows well, that, that. That, might, that. That might be the case. And if we're talking about consciousness and astrology, and we can't separate the two, that's why I've invited George on for the last hour, I would say it's the agreement among all those guys in that hot room in Philadelphia to finally, okay, this is it. The physical putting the document with a pen and quill and all that was secondary to the agreement at a consciousness level, okay, this is it. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Well, I, you know, it's going I, to be I, difficult tonight. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I still would say maybe. But regardless whether it was the second or the fourth, but the fact of the matter is 
that um, a couple of hundred years, 200 plus years of watching this chart, the chart of the what's called the Sibley chart of July 4th, actually works for timing to the important events of the United States. But the interesting thing is that the planet Uranus um, or the planet Neptune was and Pluto were not discovered until after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and they have profound impact on the chart, which leads us to believe that, um, going back to Rene Descartes, who said that if we know all the variables, we can know everything, and then maybe we can never know all the variables. Mm. So that goes back to my question. Were there, prior to the discovery of Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, Chiron, were there holes in charts where... And there still are. Yes, yes, and there still are. That's part of the indefiniteness, I think. See, part of the scientific mindset of Western traditional science is the power of prediction. You know, yes. I've said it many times, science is nothing if it's not prediction. It would be so much better if there was someone in 17, you know, 7, 1770 who said wait a minute, there's something wrong here because it, it doesn't match. And then later we found out what was wrong. To do it in retrospect and go back and say, oh, well, that's because of Chiron or that's because of Neptune, that's almost like cheating because it, it's not the true predictive in the blind of the missing factor that you then discover. I, I hear what you're saying, but the discovery of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the discovery of indeterminacy at the uh, microscopic or um, you know, um, microcosmic level um, doesn't negate thousands of years of Gala or hundreds of years of Galilean or Newtonian mechanics. Mm, well, not really because, oh, well, see, that gets to my second experiment I was going to talk to you about. <laughs> go, go for it. Well, physicists have been doing these quantum experiments, Heisenberg and all that, for decades and decades, right? Since the 1930s, which is when Heisenberg coined his famous uncertainty principle. And now, the Nobel Prize for it. Now, a few days ago, and I wish I had saved this and put it up for our discussion, there apparently is an experiment that some group has conducted with a major physical object a sensible, you can hold in your hand object containing trillions of atoms, not little tiny, you know, subatomic particles, but a real mass, a real thing that you could hold, and they've been able to put it into a quantum state for the first time, which is a stunning development, and I'm wondering if it would have been possible to always do this, given the right level of technology and money and time and you know effort or is it happening now because now is when the physics in this grand processional cycle which i think is one of the most important uh hyperdimensional slash astrological cycles when the physics of that is peaking now so this experiment is only possible maybe every 26,000 years with a window of you know it's it's a good question. Thank you. Do we have a good answer? Uh, no, but that question could be asked for other breakthroughs also. Uh, I mean, people have been messing around with tiny particles of carbon uh, um, since the invention of lasers, but it wasn't until the 70s that, you know, that carbon 60 was created 
thought to be an absolutely new substance, and now it's common knowledge that it's everywhere. And it's available in candle flames, carbon, you know, buckyballs, carbon uh, 60 can be gotten in a simple lighting of a candle. But again, was that always available to us or did something happen that created something new in that moment that now it's commonplace? See, this is a crucial underlying question of all, I think, mainstream physics, because until the mainstream physicists adopt the hyperdimensional model, again, in this very narrow view of mine, all these questions are going to not have answers. They will all be like, they still don't understand why radioactive decay seems to change when previously it didn't. Now, part of that is because if you're measuring radioactive decay rates on an isotope which has a half-life of, you know, 6,000 years, it takes very sensitive equipment to measure a fractional decay of a tiny percentage of, you know, a given reservoir of atoms. So part of it has to do with with sensitivity. But is another part due to the kind of, you know, knocking out from the underpinnings of science, the idea going back to something you said of reproducibility, because at certain times in our model, in the HD model, things can be reproduced. And then at other times they can't. No. Yes. And what you're, what you're really talking about here is something is a topic that was discussed in, I think, the most important book that Rupert Sheldrake um, ever wrote called The Presence of the Past, which has to do with, and as you may know, um, one of his famous lines is that universal laws aren't laws, they're habits, and therefore it can change. Well, he's Um, actually made a list of experiments, dear Rupert, of all the things that are not constant that physicists have been assuming are constant. but, But... but but in the book, The Presence of the Past, I know this is why I'm bringing it up, but in that book, he talks about certain things like um, like um, uh, chemist, uh, the, the material in developing film, like hypo, I think it's called. Right. Um, I don't know what the full chemical is. Um, it was unable, they were unable to crystallize it. And then someone did something and it began to crystallize. And now in, a, in, in the dark room, it's like a feat if you can get hypo not to crystallize. It was like it learned how to do it and somehow became part of the field in some moment. And now it does it. Wow. See, but hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest yep. this morning is Rick Levine, one of the world's foremost astrologers. And to take us out, this is Judy Garland. Again, very appropriate I do believe. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, 
and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.